I'm Lindsay Morgan, and you're listening to Talking Policy. Hi, Talking Policy listeners. Lindsay Morgan here in our final book talk of 2023. Today's interview is, on the face of it, about global trade, but it's also about something bigger, which is how and whether countries cooperate to advance shared goals. Of course, global cooperation is essential if we're going to address problems like climate change and protect human rights. And looking at trade provides some interesting clues about how well or not well countries will cooperate in the future. We're joined by Lauren Peretz, an associate professor of political science at UC Davis, And she's going to talk with us about her new book, Delivering on Promises, the Domestic Politics of Compliance in International Courts. Lauren, thanks for being with us today on Talking Policy. Hi, Lindsay. Um, Thanks for having me on the podcast. So, okay, your book focuses on global trade and global trade rules and what happens when countries decide to break those rules. To start us off, can you share a story that is emblematic of what your book is all about? Um, sure. Yeah, my um, my book looks at trade rules and in particular, um, what happens when countries break them. So lots of examples of this come to mind. One example I start off my book with is looking back into June of 2018, Um, when the United States, particularly the Trump administration, raised tariffs on steel and aluminum imports from a whole lot of different countries, a lot of trade partners, including Canada and the European Union. And this was uh, citing national security concerns. However, this ran afoul of the World Trade Organization's trade rules, which the U.S. is a member of. The U.S. signed this treaty, this series of contracts that said, I'll keep my trade barriers low unless there's a really important national security concern. And and here, the the case for security concerns was pretty thin. Um, So countries, uh, trade partners of the United States said, look, this is really hurting our commerce. And so they sued the United States at the World Trade Organization. So the dispute wound its way through the adjudication process. And um, and by st- and as this was going on, the European Union started to pressure the U.S. by imposing retaliatory tariffs. Um, it did that on political sensitive, politically sensitive industries, including American-made motorcycles and whiskey. And so, this series of retaliatory measures then push the US to retaliate in kind. And and so this is what we see as um, an example of a beginning of a trade war. And one country retaliates against the other in a new industry. And this starts to creep across countries' borders and industries to affect lots of uh, different areas of trade. This is what the World Trade Organization is trying to avoid. It's trying to contain the disputes, make them rules-based and limited, so they don't end up screwing up global commerce. Um, So that's the kind of puzzle that I'm looking at in my book. When does the WTO effectively contain these disputes and come up with a legal settlement? And when does it fail where it starts to spill over into other industries? 
The example from your book um, about the steel and aluminum tariffs are really interesting, and they show how governments like our own, the U.S. government, are torn between protecting their local industries, um, ensuring you know the low prices of key commodities, and following global rules and being a fair, cooperative trading partner. So I, th- I thought that was such an interesting example to start your book with. And, and it shows, you know, part of why trade is so interesting, because all of these competing interests are at play. And because we are so, as a country, so dependent on each other, on other countries, for all of the sort of goods and products that make our modern lives possible. Why did you decide when you started out thinking that you wanted to write a book? Why did you decide to focus on trade and the World Trade Organization and not on other areas where global cooperation and global rules also play a big role, like, for example, human rights. I think about climate change as well. What was it about trade that made you interested in focusing in on that? I, when I set out to work on this project, I thought of, I kept finding that international trade really permeates different parts of our economy and our daily life as consumers or as employees. And um, so it it tends to have an effect that we might not otherwise notice, Um, but it is pervasive. And so there's lots of examples where global trade rules play a big role in our lives. And I kind of wanted to uncover that, particularly how it affects our domestic economy. So when I say domestic economy, I mean what's going on in the U.S. economy where we're importing goods and services from abroad and it affects the production that happens at home. And we see lots of examples about how the World Trade Organization can fundamentally alter the domestic economy in the U.S. A good example comes from when China joined the WTO back in 2001. It opened up a huge amount of global commerce that hadn't previously been covered by the organization's rules. And so this had an effect on consumer goods available in the U.S. so we could get cheaper stuff. That can be helpful, but it also had a lot of downsides, including altering domestic manufacturing. So in the U.S. and in Europe and many other industrialized locations, a lot of manufacturing firms had to downsize their workforces or went out of business. Jobs that maybe paid pretty well or provided a middle class existence for people, those jobs evaporated. And this can be traced back in part to trade. This is a, a way in which like, maybe it's kind of subtle and you don't quite notice, but it does affect our domestic economy and it affects people's lives. So political scientists are super interested in this topic as well as economists. And a lot of people have tried to trace some of the implications from China joining the WTO. And they've found a lot of really interesting things, including growth of populism that we see in the US and Europe today. So in short, international trade matters. Maybe it's a little bit subtle, but tracing its effects, I think, is pretty interesting. So when I think about international courts, my mind immediately goes to the International Criminal Court. In what ways is the ICC similar to the WTO and how are they different? 
Yeah, I mean, well, we have a whole lot of different international courts out there, and some deal specifically with trade, like the one that I examined, and some deal with um, issues of human rights or humanitarian issues. Um, the International Criminal Court is an example of a newer international court that has jurisdiction only over the most egregious crimes, like crimes against humanity, genocide, war crimes, really serious problems that uh, countries can commit. And this court is quite a bit different than the WTO in that it has a, an aim of deterring crimes and punishing leaders of countries after they've committed these problems. The World Trade Organization, by contrast, is much more similar to what we think of as like arbitration, not strictly speaking, but they really worry about settling disputes and trying to contain disputes so they don't blow up. And so a little bit of compromise is necessary there. Try to contain the trade dispute before countries retaliate and come up with some kind of compromise. At the same time, in, the enforcement mechanisms are similar in that there's no centralized authority to tell countries that, oh, hey, you broke the trade rules, you have to make compensation, or you broke human rights standards, you must accept punishment. In this case, in both types of courts, it's up to the international community to pressure countries to comply with their standards. That's interesting. Different mandates, but equally limited ability to enforce those mandates. Going back to the World Trade Organization, which is the international body that resolves trade disputes between member countries, how common are WTO lawsuits and who are the biggest rule breakers? Trade disputes at the WTO are pretty common. Um, we have a lot of international courts in action. One of them is the International Court of Justice, which is part of the United Nations. And they deal with all sorts of disputes, all different types of topics like territorial disputes and military disputes. And they've been around since 1946, but have only seen 190 cases. By contrast, the World Trade Organization, since 1995, when it was set up, has seen uh, over 600 formal disputes. So it, it's definitely more common. That said, we can think of these formal trade disputes as something of the tip of an iceberg for all of the conflicts over trade that occur between countries. I have looked at data in the United States on this, and U.S. firms file tens of thousands of complaints with the U.S. trade representative alleging violations under WTO rules. So they're, they're making lots and lots of complaints, but only a tiny fraction of those complaints ever are brought as formal lawsuits. In your book, you found that the WTO can enforce trade rules some of the time, that this enforcement mechanism does work, but that some of the time uh, those efforts are blocked by domestic interest groups who are able to you know, lock in policies that favor their industry. And your example at the beginning about the aluminum and steel industry here in the U.S. is a great example of that. I I'm curious if you could walk us through like another example of how this has worked in practice, where a suit has been brought before the WTO. The WTO has issued 
a ruling, but that that ruling was was effectively blocked by the power of these domestic interest groups. Can you give us another, like, tell us another story of how that how that works when it happens? Yeah, I think that the stories are sometimes the most interesting part of this research. Um, so I should say, you know, the U.S. and the European Union are the most frequent users of the World Trade Organization. So most of my examples come from those countries. I should note that the European Union acts as a single entity at the World Trade Organization. So we'll just refer to it as like one monolith actor. But even though individual European countries can make their own policies, they kind of work as one group when they deal with the trade rules at the WTO. Uh, A good example comes from Canada. Um, One of the cases I looked at in my book In 2009, the provincial government of Ontario within Canada passed a Green Energy Act, and this uh, act aimed to encourage investment in renewable energy production. Um, And I should say this Green Energy Act was implemented at the provincial level, not the Canadian uh, federal level. So it's akin to having a state law as opposed to a federal law in the U.S. context. And it ran into trouble with global trade rules because there was this domestic content requirement. And that basically said uh, better pricing for companies that used equipment from Canadian firms as opposed to foreign firms. And this this is is basically a violation of WTO rules. So um, several countries, Japan, uh, EU at the top of the list, sued Canada at the World Trade Organization. Basically, they brought the Canadian government as a whole to task for what the provincial government in Ontario was doing. Um, And so Canada lost and appealed and lost again. And some folks in Canada preferred compliance that would stave off retaliation. Um, But but when we look down at the provincial level in Ontario, folks strongly favored the legislation and they didn't really want to comply with the WTO orders. They said, these domestic content requirements are good for the economy, they're favoring Canadian firms, and they're helping push forward green energy. It it kind of created this uh, standstill with many rounds of negotiation between at the national level, the Canadian federal government, and at the provincial level, which wanted different things. Did the provincial level just say, no, we're not going to do that? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And and you can see that kind of problem play out when you look at um, uh, analogies in the U.S. government where perhaps states that are held by one party or represent, say, agricultural interests say, no, we're not going to we're not going to move forward with this national plan that we don't support. So when that happens, I mean, what can the WTO do? If, if they've they've made a ruling and then the response is just no. I mean, it's almost like I think of like <laughs> for parents, you know, like telling their kid, like, put on your jacket and they say no. And it's like, OK, what, what do we do now? We're at a standstill. What are the carrots and sticks that I can implement here? Like, right, what are right. what what's the next step? For a while, Canada lay on the ground and refused to get up and put on the coat or whatever. And um, and then eventually the carrots and sticks were that um, the European Union and Japan threatened retaliation. 
And this is, I think, another important thing that sets the WTO apart from other courts is that there's like metered and uh, systematic levels of retaliation that are, are permitted. Um, so a proportionate level. Um, and so that threat actually got the Canadian government to get its situation in line and get some new policies passed. So eventually Canada did come into compliance, but it took a long time. And that delay actually ended up satisfying a lot of what the Ontario's, Ontario government wanted to achieve, which was some subsidies to uh, Canadian firms. So um, it accomplished some of what they were uh, trying to do in the first place. Um, I should say it's not just this kind of division between national and provincial or state government that can create problems for compliance. Uh, we can also see lots of uh, uh, we can also see lots of gridlock if your government has a lot of entrenched partisan divisions. Then politicians are likely to veto legislation and therefore make it hard to adjust policy. So um, we can see examples in the United States here. Uh, the US has run into trouble with the Farm Bill, which is passed every few years, because it has sub sometimes has subsidies to farmers that run afoul of the WTO trade rules. Uh, an example of that is like the US subsidizes cotton growers. And so the WTO has issued rulings that say like those subsidies are not permissible. And it's hard for the US to comply with rulings on this matter because even if some legislators say, great, let's get rid of the subsidies, other legislators, especially from agricultural districts, want to preserve the farm subsidies. It helps their constituents. Um, so they'll vote against any removal of subsidies in the next farm bill. So this is kind of that um, effect of like once you have these trade barriers like subsidies in place, it's pretty hard to get rid of them. I want to come back to something that you mentioned, and it relates to the Farm Bill, which is that the primary users of the WTO adjudication mechanism or dispute settlement mechanism, you know, are rich countries, the, the countries that created the institution in, to start with and whose rules uh, benefit these countries and systems the most. And um, the countries that do not use this mechanism would be like poorer countries, least developed countries. And I'm thinking about the Farm Bill is an example where um, the U.S. is guilty, along with other rich countries, of protecting domestic industry to the disadvantage of um, poorer countries who could, in the absence of those subsidies, actually effectively compete you know, on the global market, which would be good for development, um, which is the goal that the U.S. supports this ostensibly. So I'm just interested in your reflection on that. In, in, you know, when we think about global rules, global institutions, there's always a question of who are these rules designed to benefit? And like, in what ways uh, do they reflect our sort of broader values? I'm just curious what you think about all of that. You know, I think when the WTO's dispute settlement system came into play, it was pitched um, or at least like publicized as helping to level the playing field between the industrialized West, the wealthiest countries, and the poorer countries. I think many people remain skeptical of that characterization. And, um, and as we've seen the WTO 
kind of play out in, since 1995. I think some of that skepticism is quite appropriate. Um, many countries that are using the settlement dispute settlement system are industrialized, wealthy, and sometimes middle-income countries. And we don't see the developing world often able to use the dispute settlement system, in part because they see the power imbalance and see these lawsuits as potentially futile. Kind of going back to some of the earlier examples we talked about, we said, what would ultimately make Canada comply with a WTO ruling? It was ultimately the threat of retaliation from the accuser countries. And if the accuser country has a small market, that might not be a very effective option for them. Un unfortunately, I think the uh, efforts at creating a more level playing field in these trade disputes hasn't really borne out. It may, going forward, we sometimes see exceptions um, a, a kind of fun exception, I thought, was when Antigua and Barbuda successfully sued the United States, won, and got the U.S. to comply. The U.S. is a far, far larger market. But here, the Caribbean countries were able to gain leverage by threatening to let loose on copyright violations. And that ticked off Hollywood. And then Hollywood said, OK, let's let's concede. Let's get the U.S. to concede. You know, I think um, the WTO has not done enough to support low-income countries and um, help them gain some level of competition with uh, the in richer industrialized countries. Um, so I, I totally agree with your point that the competition on the global market might have been more feasible without the dramatic subsidies that we do see taking place. Um, the WTO tries to rein those in, but not too significantly. It's interesting to think about WTO being created, as you said, as a way to level the playing field. So there's a sort of equity um, ethic embedded into that, at least as, at the level of ideas, whether it's borne out in practice is another matter. But what about the argument that smoothing trade disputes can help prevent uh escalation of conflict between countries, even escalation that reaches the level that goes beyond economics that can reach, you know, the, the level of violence. I think this is something we think about a lot now with US-China competition and the threat of it spilling into actual war. Do you think that the WTO as a rule setter and an enforcer of rules through the mechanisms it has, flawed though they may be, do you think that it has contributed to that goal? So the WTO is an institution that grew out of a whole series of institutions called the Bretton Woods uh, Agreements. Those were negotiations that happened right at the, at the cusp of World War II, towards the end of World War II. And the folks involved in that said, if we create these international organizations to come up with at least a rules-based system and stabilize global economic relations, maybe we can reduce the chance of violent conflict that we saw in World War II. The International Monetary Fund came out of that. The World Bank came out of that. The WTO is one of those. So certainly an aspiration. And from what I've seen in its last 25 or so years of performance, I do think it succeeded in containing trade disputes and preventing spiraling trade wars. Not perfectly, but minimizing that risk. I am guessing that it has also in turn reduced 
the risks of violent conflict that might spill out of destabilized economies. As part of IGCC's Future of Democracy initiative, we look at the challenge of growing populism and polarization, both here in the US and also globally. And if protectionism, the sense of America first grows among the public, do you think that countries will be even less likely to comply with WTO rulings? Yeah, you know, I think um, it may worsen, but what we may also see is complete disregard for WTO disputes. So in a sense, it might look like fewer disputes are filed against the U.S. because countries don't want to waste their time using legal means that are likely to deliver no good outcomes. So we might not see the WTO compliance rate drop per se, we might see countries resorting to trade wars or ignoring the WTO altogether. I think the compliance rate is a number that reflects a lot of moving parts, and it might not necessarily reflect the growing protectionism and disregard for the WTO as a useful legal venue. Nonetheless, in terms of your your question about Um, a general kind of swing towards protectionism and the public, if we see um, the public prefer leadership that takes a protectionist position, we're likely to see more spiraling trade wars. We see some evidence of this during the Trump administration in the U.S. And we've also seen examples of this with the vote for Brexit, where the U.K. left the European Union. And I think this has costs. There's uh, some folks that have estimated the cost of Trump's trade war on the U.S. economy. This study uh, by Amity, Redding, and Weinstein shows that in the first year that the Trump trade war was going on, the tariffs had reduced U.S. real income by $1.4 billion per month. That's a huge amount. Other trade analysts have estimated that the consumers in the U.S. economy largely bore the brunt of these tariffs, paying up to $48 billion more for consumer goods, so that the populist rhetoric can really kind of turn into some costly policies for everyday consumers. Yeah, it's interesting that what might kind of feel good intuitively as a voter, you know, bringing industry back to the U.S. and protecting our our own economy first, that can actually have these unintended consequences that have the opposite of the intended effect. <laughs> yeah, and like the most um, of the trade economists that I read their, uh, their policy suggestions, it seems to suggest that we're not going to recreate a long-lost golden age of manufacturing in the U.S., We're not going to unravel economic globalization or roll back automation. Instead, we should invest in growing industries and areas where the U.S. can create more jobs and have a competitive edge. Things like renewable energy technology, where we've seen the U.S. government investing. That's that's an area that might be a job creating area. We're you know, we are about to head into a 
a really important election year in the U.S. where um, the differences between the candidates are likely to be really significant um, and voters will have to disentangle the messages that they're hearing. Uh, and trade is one of these kinds of uh, issues that gets thrown around a lot uh, on the campaign trail. And if you were to, given the years that you have spent studying trade, studying um, how domestic politics interacts with the global trade, what would you want voters like me, I mean, to, to be thinking about over the next year? Like, what would you want to tell them? I, I guess I'd just say, like, educate yourself about what the real issues are. Don't get distracted by tangential things that, and I think of, like, some of the culture wars as being used to really um, get people all hyped up on issues that don't ultimately affect their jobs, their environment, the safety of the water that they're drinking, the safety of the products that they're putting in their bodies. Um, get educated on the real issues, because if you just vote on the simple knee-jerk reactions to the culture wars, you're going to let a lot of these important issues get decided by the people with money and power that maybe aren't keeping voters' best interests in mind. Lauren Parrott, thanks for being with us on Talking Policy, a slightly gloomy end to our interview. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I think this research is so interesting and so important. Thanks, Lauren, for being with us. Thank you, Lindsay. It was a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks for being with us at IGCC and have a great week.